Hey, this is Dan Denver, host of The Dig. It's that critical moment before the interview begins, where I solemnly ask you for your cash. We are getting tremendous support on Patreon, a website that allows you to financially support creative projects that you like, like, say, The Dig. We now have a brand new offer for our most generous supporters. $25 a month or more makes you a central committee member, entitling you not only to call in and ask guests questions and to a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, but also to six, that is six books total, written by guests or friends of the show that we will ship to you each and every year for as long as you donate. We've got a bunch on offer, including Jed Purdy's After Nature, a politics for the Anthropocene, George Chicarello Mars' Decolonizing Dialectics, and Diane Ravitch's Reign of Air, the hoax of the privatization movement, and the danger to America's public schools. If you are already donating at a lower level, you can up your donation to central committee level at any time. Please go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a donation. We really do appreciate donations of any size. Even a few bucks a month helps a bunch. Thanks. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Perhaps the most recurrent question on this show is how to parse the continuities and disjunctures of a president who campaigned in white nationalist, anti-globalist poetry and governs in the well-worn prose of Goldman Sachs and Tomahawk missiles. Trump's oligarchic regime is in many ways an extreme iteration of the imperial and economic elite vision that has guided presidents of both major parties, particularly a Republican party that had long since been captured by Ayn Rand fanboys and Christian supremacists. But the popularity of Trump's nakedly chauvinist, protectionist, and xenophobic appeal, despite his seemingly sharp deviations from that agenda in office, no doubt points to a major crisis in the ideological and political economic regime that has governed the U.S. and by extension the world for decades. And that's neoliberalism. Of course, neoliberalism is by no means over, but it certainly does seem to be in serious crisis. When and how it dies, if it does, and critically, what form of governance, capitalist or otherwise, might emerge in its wake, are critical, scary, and unanswered questions. Today, my guest is Nicole Ashoff, managing editor at Jacobin and the author of The Prophets of Capital. Nicole Ashoff, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. So cutting to the heart of it, is neoliberalism over or close to it? You write that Brexit and Trump's election signify something more than popular anger, xenophobia, and cultural anxiety. They mark the end of neoliberalism's heyday and the emergence of a competing capitalist vision. This vision, at least rhetorically, rejects two of the founding tenets undergirding contemporary global capitalism— the global trade architecture operating through institutions like NAFTA, and the interstate alliances buttressing America's decades-old geopolitical vision and goals. So Trump's victory was widely regarded as a revolt against globalism, but 
but you argue that it also signals a profound crisis in the political economic order that has ruled the globe for decades. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, basically, I think my basic thrust in the piece was just trying to get people beyond thinking that Trump was the crisis, but that instead kind of flipping that and thinking of Trump as a result of a deeper crisis and uh, kind of stepped into this kind of confusing, confusing kind of vacancy. Um, and so it's not necessarily like neoliberalism, neoliberalism is going to be over tomorrow, but that there is, you know, a deep kind of sense of crisis in, in the dominant ideas. What, what is um, neoliberalism as both an ideology and, I guess, a policy architecture? Well, and and that's neoliberalism itself is like a really a shorthand word, and you should always I I use it, but it's kind of sloppy because really it's it's not any different from capitalism. It's just a sort of way of organizing capitalism. So if we think about it in terms of um, like a set of policies, right? We can say, well, we want to make it easier for trade and capital and goods uh, and services to pass from one place to another. And we should we should really emphasize the market, right? Sort of pull the state out of the equation, use the state to facilitate, um, you know, the, the privatization and commodification of more spheres of life. So if we, can, we can see it that way in terms of um, a set of kind of policies, but it's also a broader kind of ideology about um, you know, how you should organize society and how you should see yourself in that society, right? So we can think about ourselves as, you know, individuals, right, who make choices and we meet in the marketplace and, you know, it's our choices that determine where we're going and we can, you know, build our own human and social capital and get ahead. And it's very sort of, you know, these kinds of ideas that really that you know, element of neoliberalism is still really robust, right? This isn't something that's going away. The point I'm trying to make here is that we're seeing a sort of rhetorical crisis or a crisis of legitimacy uh, in the kinds of ways that we talk about society and talk about the global economy. And Trump is really representative of that. Many analyses of neoliberalism focus, obviously, on economic policies and ideologies. Um, But you, you argue that the global geopolitical order, or not even argue, just point out it's it's because uh, I think it's obviously correct, uh, that institutions like NATO and things like U.S. imperialism are also part and parcel of that system. Can you describe the role that U.S. foreign policy plays in the global political economic order? Yeah, I mean, I think this is um, where some of the kind of scholars who have studied global capitalism um, really have a lot to add you know, to the picture. It's like we're not just talking about things like, you know, container ships full of awesome, you know, things coming from China that we can purchase, right? Um, it's it's more than that. It's like what actually undergirds this kind of global trade uh, architecture, right? And that's actually something that's grounded in force, and it's grounded in uh, military might, right? If you look at sort of the complexity and size of the global economy, something that's interesting is that historically over time, we see, you know, states like uh, England and then the United States just building these bigger and bigger militaries, right? It, It goes alongside of it. So when we look at these kinds of alliances, they're central to the kind of global economy as we imagine it. It's not just sort of arm's length friendly sort of businesses and trade 
feels, right? There's sort of blood and guts and nasty kind of uh, war making that, that is part and parcel of that. Um, the the argument that neoliberalism is in crisis, you point out, is complicated by the very conventional business class pedigree of many of Trump's top people who hail from Goldman Sachs and ExxonMobil and get their policy prescriptions from the Heritage Foundation. How do you make sense of the combination of the protectionist, anti-globalist nationalism and the traditional business, Republican business orthodoxy that we're seeing in the White House? You know, you read the newspaper every day. <laughs> this week seems to be just like the doozy of them all, right? You read the newspaper and you just sit there sort of puzzling over the kinds of things that Trump is doing. I mean, so it's a weird combination of you know, him bombing Syria, for example, right? It's both unsurprising yet confusing, right? It's a sort of who is this person? Like we look at the kinds of people that he's appointing and many of them are sort of the old kind of classic, um, you know, business interests. And then he has someone like Bannon, who maybe got demoted this week, who knows, uh, standing next to him on the other side, uh, sort of talking into his ear about, you know, how we should maybe rebuild fascism in the United States. So it it creates this kind of confusing picture, but at the same time, I think it's appropriate because we live in a confusing time. And I think what Trump's kind of administration and his cabinet appointees and the broader kind of Republican Party show is this kind of uh, clashing elite interests, right, over what the position of the United States should be in the global economy. I think we're really seeing that clash right now and a lot of uncertainty as to actually where where that's going to end up. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really smart point that regardless of what uh, the fact that Trump is, in fact, pursuing many traditional Republican uh, policies in both ec- the economic realm and in foreign policy slash bombing other countries realm, um, that it is very important that at least on the rhetorical or ideological level, the way he represents a crisis in neoliberalism. And because it points, I think, to the fact that its future now seems uncertain. And with neoliberalism, I think this is particularly key because a hallmark of its hegemony was its seeming um, inevitable permanence. Frank uh, Francis Fukuyama describing it as the end of history, uh, Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. What was it that made neoliberalism seem so inevitable for so long? Well, I think it just won for a really long time. <laughs> I mean, if you look back, if you take a longer kind of, uh, you know, historical picture and you go back to the 1970s, which I think is really important. If you want to understand where we are today, go back to the 1970s and look at the kind of, you know, deep crisis that the U.S. and many other countries in the world were mired in, right? This sort of, and there was a real sense of confusion then about sort of how to move out of that crisis. Like we can, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We can look back and say, oh, they created neoliberalism and globalization and, and started investing in finance. And that was great. It solved all their problems uh, for the elite, that is. But at the time, that wasn't clear at all, right? Uh, so, I think we have that sort of sort of sense of confusion today. It's funny. I was my my good friend and also uh, the author co-author of a great book called The Making of Global Capitalism. Sam Gindin. He wrote the book with Leo Panitch. Asked me after he read this article. He's like, "Well, what do you mean by crisis?" He's like, "We need to talk about that." And I was like, "Well, yeah. I mean, 
you know, what do you mean when you say neoliberalism is in crisis? It doesn't mean that capitalism is like, you know, going to end or that we're seeing this big intractable sort of crisis. I think it's useful to think about crisis as a kind of turning point, right? And as a kind of uh, situation that forces elites and sort of the keepers of the status quo to actually, you know, adapt and change the kinds of ways they organize capitalism. And this creates an opportunity, I think, for the left. And we'll definitely get to that in some depth, I hope. But before we do that, I'm. can you talk a little bit about the the crisis, not currently of neoliberalism, but of capitalism that neoliberalism emerged to to resolve the contradictions of? So in the 1970s? Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think if we want to, you know, if we think about it briefly, and then I don't want to keep pushing us back in time, but, right, we see this kind of reorganization of global capitalism after World War II, right? You see the U.S. Uh, completely victorious and has the sort of goodwill and hegemonic power to say, you know, this is how we should organize the global economy. You set up this sort of whole Bretton Woods system. And for a while, it's going great, basically, because you have a lot of countries, particularly the big economies like Germany and Japan, rebuilding. Uh, You have a lot of uh, you know, room for U.S. corporations to kind of move into other markets. And you have, you know, a lot of uh, kind of belief, at least for a couple decades, particularly coming from the global south, that the U.S. is there to try to, you know, promote a different kind of, you know, new world order where people can have agency and countries can have economic sovereignty and we can all grow. And for a while, everybody did grow, right? Uh, you see, uh, really high growth rates. You have this kind of golden period in Latin America and many countries in, in Africa, particularly, you know, after decolonization. And things are going well. Uh, but by the 1970s, really, and even the late 1960s, you start to see the kind of contradictions of this model, and they're starting to become more and more intractable, right? So in the case of the United States, you have the United States trying to play global policemen in Vietnam yet respond to, you know, demands of social movements at home, right, Provide the old providing guns and butter. Uh, and that becomes increasingly difficult because you have a lot of competition emerging from other comp- countries, right? So U.S. corporations are all of a sudden having to compete. Profit rates are going down. So you have this kind of, you know, triple crisis, as Greta Krippner, uh called it, which is like this social, political, and, you know, and economic crisis at the same time, right? And it's really something that is a major problem by the 1970s. And policymakers are struggling to kind of figure out a way to get out of it. And then how does neoliberalism uh, solve the, these contradictions? In the U.S., uh, they were presented in the form of, of, of stagflation and the, the oil shock. Yeah, well, neoliberalism basically solves them by saying, look, the state tried to do all these great things, and look how much it mucked everything up, right? So the answer, right, this is something that people like Milton Friedman are saying, the answer is that the state should uh, disengage from trying to organize the economy, it should let the market do its job, and it should stop trying to provide this very expensive social safety net that doesn't seem to be working. We have all these unions and lazy, entitled workers right this is the this is the kind of rhetoric uh we companies need to be flexible they need to be able to um hire and fire at will they need to be able to 
you know, uh, invest in other things and move overseas. They say, oh, banks need to be deregulated, right? So there's this whole sort of set of policy policy options that come to be seen as, you know, together as a solution, right? Basically, um, break the back of the unions and social movements, uh, create new opportunities for profit, and really push the costs of all this restructuring onto workers and the global south, which is exactly what they did. And it, is it the – but it was also resolved on the backs of American workers in many ways. How how does neoliberalism, which from the get-go has such a devastating impact on so many working people here and elsewhere, how is it implemented in a in an electoral democracy? How is popular consent or I guess at least acquiescence one? Well, a lot of it was um, particularly in the United States, if you want to think about it um, in the manufacturing sector, for example, a lot of it was really um, fear-based, right? You see for the first time, I studied the auto industry, so we could, that's a perfect example. Um, you see, for example, um, new competitors coming in. Right. Um, so it used to be that GM and Chrysler and Ford completely dominated the U.S. market. By the 1970s and 80s, you see new Japanese and European firms coming in, and all of a sudden they're really giving these companies, you know, U.S. companies a run for their money, and profits are going down, and workers are really afraid they're going to lose their jobs. And companies are saying, we're going to move uh, to Mexico, we're going to move out of uh, North America to someplace else, and you're going to lose your job unless you give us concessions, unless you open up your contract and allow us to uh, cut costs. So it's really this kind of fear and anxiety that uh, not only are U.S. companies no longer competitive, but a broader fear that the kinds of sort of halcyon days of the post-World War II era are over, and the kinds of gains that workers uh, received and won were no longer tenable, right? They were that, that was no longer possible. And so I think it's really, this is the way that you start to really, you know, insert these kinds of neoliberal ideas into people's everyday consciousness. When did the, when did the, in your view, the end of neoliberalism become foreseeable? Because if Trump is a reflection of a crisis in neoliberalism, when would you date that crisis to? Does it go, is it, it seems in some ways that it's sort of ever-present. There was a lot of political backlash against NAFTA with the Perot candidacy and also Democratic and union opposition. And then there was the WTO and global justice movement at the end of the 90s. Is this a long-running crisis that is just reaching a stage of more intense and irreconcilable contradictions? In some ways, yes. I think that that's definitely true. Um, I think, you know, this kind of nationalist kind of populist elements um, and also just like critiques of globalization are always present, right? People were critiquing globalization not only from the left, but also from the right, right? You see a lot of the whole kind of spectrum of critique, but that was really not the dominant, um, you know, that really didn't have a place on the stage as a legitimate ideology, right? Sort of populist nationalism. That was something that, um, was present, and you saw sort of little spikes of it, right, as you said, with the Perot uh, candidacy, but it really was something that was kind of easily, um, you know, quashed by the sort of neoliberal center, both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. I think if we had to really pick, you know, and you did see um, 
some strong social movements building up at the end of the 90s and and 2000. But I think September 11th kind of gave a kind of reset button uh, to to ruling elites. And you saw kind of, um, you know, they kind of... um, There was an IMF World Bank... There was an IMF World Bank protest like scheduled for that week (laughs) um, of September 11th. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually, yeah, I was supposed to go to that. That was, it was strange, right? Because that was right when I was a very young person. And it was strange, right? Everything completely ended after after 9-11 for quite a while. Um, and so you have this kind of reboot and, 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 you know, increase in militarization. So I think if we really had to kind of pinpoint, I would say it was, you know, when we're seeing this kind of, re, you know, real crisis of neoliberalism, I think it's the 2008 financial crisis. Um, I think that was a major, you know, I know it was a major shock to the system, right? Not only in the United States, but it had ripple effects globally, right? We see this major crisis um, in Europe. We have this uh, devastating spike in food crisis in food prices in 2011. Uh, we see, you know, commodity prices start to drop, which really impacts, you know, uh, like Latin American countries. So it's something that, even though, you know, uh, the kind of ruling elites in the United States said, "Nope, we've got it handled. Don't worry. We have this quantitative easing, and we bailed out the banks, and everything's fine. Look, unemployment's going back down." I think that that was a crisis that never really got resolved. Hey, hey, this is Dan once again. I'm chiming in to remind you to give us money. To donate, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Thanks, and now back to the show. It's a really interesting point that you made about the war on terror and how it seems that uh, the war on terror did resolve certain contradictions for neoliberalism, at least temporarily, but in the long run created a whole new set of contradictions that I think, and I think those contradictions have been underappreciated in terms of what what created the political conditions that gave rise to Trump. The fact that we've been in this war on terror for, um, you know, since 2001 and are just in permanent war. Yeah, exactly. We're in permanent war. And I think one of the reasons why Trump really won uh, is that he was willing to speak to the kind of pervasive fear and anxiety that's, you know, that's evident, right, in your everyday life. People are afraid, and they see no end to this kind of uh, morass in the Middle East and Afghanistan. They don't even really think or see the kind of consequences. It's just a sort of endless, you know, uh, you know, movie reel that plays over and over of just terror spreading across the globe. And it's, you know, it's create, but it's created a really bad kind of uh, additional set of problems to the kinds of contradictions from economic, you know, the sort of neoliberal economic policies. And it creates a very sort of, you know, worrisome future, right? So if we're seeing now, like this week, right, Trump, uh, you know, wasn't able to pass his health care plan, you know, who knows if he's going to be able to come up with a palatable tax plan. Uh, so he bombs, you know, he bombs Syria, which he is directly orthogonal to what he said he was going to do. Uh, and he's, you know, he's increasing co- sort of presence uh, near North Korea. And so it's a question of sort of, well, where does that strategy fit into this, right? Uh, I think it's worrisome. It's utterly terrifying, I think. If we're dating the the 
sort of culmination of uh, the contradictions and uh, in, in neoliberalism that really put it into the fully into the crisis category to the financial crisis, which makes a lot of sense. Then on the political end of things, the context is really the Obama administration. How do you see the role that the Obama administration played in responding to and really being elected because of, in some sense, the financial crisis in bringing us to where we are today? Well, I think you really could see it in the exit polls of, I mean, it's really telling how many people voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. Um, I think it's interesting that, and I know a lot of, I'm a little bit older than a lot of the sort of newly politicized, you know, I'm 37. A lot of the people who are sort of newly politicized are in their, you know, early 20s, uh, mid 20s. And many of them kind of came of age with Obama, and they remember being really excited, you know, by his presidency. And it was something that, you know, they really had a lot of hope and expectation that, you know, things were going to get better. And I think it was super, it was, it was really disappointing, um, in part because, you know, not just that Obama kind of bailed out Wall Street and continued with business as usual, but he also really, you know, didn't make a break from any of the kinds of kind of devastating consequences that were, you know, shaping people's everyday lives. So spiraling student debt, uh, you know, skyrocketing inequality, and also his foreign policy, right, of just continuing with the U.S. aggression overseas, increasing, uh, you know, drone strikes, and, you know, deporting people by the millions. I mean, these are things like that are taking place amidst this very sort of polished, calm administration who's constantly saying, no, everything is fine. We have it in hand. Right. So your average person is looking at this and saying the political elite don't care about me at all. Right. And these are all just insiders who keep doing exactly the same thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why Hillary Clinton was so unappealing to people, because she seemed as a direct continuation of that. America is already great. Yeah. Um, Which it isn't. (laughs) Really. Um, (laughs) um, Before we move on, I want to do a quick kind of glossary caveat and wondered if you could uh, explain briefly, because we've both been talking about it a lot, what we what one means when they uh, or I guess what a Marxist means when they talk about contradictions within neoliberalism or capitalism and why that's important and how that fits in to um, your analysis and others analyses of uh, how political economic orders change over time. Well, I guess we could think about it really super basically, right, in the sense that Capitalism needs to have legitimacy for people to participate because it's a nominally a voluntary system, right? Like many people are coerced um, into, you know, participating in the sort of wage economy because they have no other choice, right? They're not trust fund babies and they can't sort of grow their own food and be homesteaders, right? So there's that level of coercion, but there's also a very strong voluntary element, right? We all have to willingly sort of devote ourselves and our energies and participate in making our society go, right? Making our for-profit society keep going and reproduce itself. So the way that that works is we show up for work, right? We get paid a wage and capitalists get uh, a profit at the end of it. But what happens over time is if you just keep squeezing, you know, 
workers and paying them less and making them work longer and, and causing lots of anxiety and, uh, you know, but at the same time creating maybe some little options for them to try to get by. So say here, here's the credit card, take out a bunch of debt, or you can refinance your home uh, and use that as an equity stream to pay for your kid's college or to pay off your medical bills, right? We create, we create these kinds of, um, kind of architectures of precarity that are based on this very basic underlying, um, you know, relationship that's getting more and more fraught over time. People aren't making enough money to survive, even with two, you know, two earner households. It's like people are more in debt than they've ever been, uh, yet profits are are going up and up and the elites are just raking in the cash, right? So these kinds of contradictions are not sustainable over the long run without creating crises, right? Without having some types of resolutions. Now, the resolutions aren't always things that help workers, right? Often there's just ways to displace the crisis uh, or, you know, separate out and punish some, some working people by putting them in jail, for example, and, you know, helping others, right? So it's this kind of fundamental unequal relationship that creates these contradictions over time. And it seems like credit is uh, the credit bubble is the most salient example of that because you have increasing precarity and difficult economic and social difficulties in so many Americans' lives, and increasingly credit being extended to sort of paper over that. But like all uh, fi- temporary fixes for for contradictions, um, they they create ultimately a new contradiction in this case the 2007-8 financial crisis yeah exactly and and the way and the reason why you know we're still in this crisis one of the reasons why is that the way that we dealt with that crisis right the 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 explosion of the housing bubble it wasn't that we sort of looked at the root causes of it and said okay we need to actually fix some of these structural problems, right? That people are reliant on credit, that they don't have enough money to pay their mortgages, um, that loans are stealing, uh, banks are selling them, you know, uh, loans just to make a bunch of money, uh, that they don't even know what's in these loans, right? Instead of dealing with those kinds of uh, structural problems, we sort of papered over the crisis, reinflated the bubble, uh, by kind of like giving these banks all of this money, right, bailing them out. And now we just kind of transfer the bubble to a new bubble, which is the student loan bubble, right? Uh, we see now this, the student loan debt is in the trillions of dollars. And and like one, I think it's like one in eight people, uh, one in eight of these loans is in default, right? Students aren't getting jobs where they can pay back their loans, right? So we have this other sort of looming bubble um, as a, you know, it's the, the solution always to people's problems this time was, oh, go get an education. The reason why you're not getting enough money is because you don't have the right skills. So go to this for-profit college and take out a bunch of money, um, which, you know, doesn't work for people. So now we have this other huge bubble. And, yeah, so there there is this uh, <clears throat> process of, of uh, contradiction, papering over contradiction, which then creates new contradictions. But there is no... Um, uh, inevitable direction that these contradictions lead or sort of teleological development that they get resolved um, in a certain way. So looking at where we are now in your article, the 
the end of neoliberalism by no means necessarily means the end of capitalism. And understandably, you don't seem quite ready to predict what this post-neoliberal order might look like, um, which is totally fair because nothing at all right now is super clear. But what do you think might be on its way? Well, you know, it's you always want to think that we've hit bottom in terms of attacks on working people. <laughs> but um, it, it's not at all clear to me that that is the case. Um, certainly, you know, elites just keep trying to grab more and more. But if we want to think about, you know, where the future lies, we can say there is a crisis of legitimacy for the kind of dominant ideas of the past three decades. I think that that's definitely true. But the way out of that crisis, I think, is unclear. And it's partly unclear because of the, in the United States at least, because of the kind of person that filled the vacancy as a result of this crisis, right? If we see Trump as an expression of this crisis of legitimacy, um, I don't think he's really going to be in a position to resolve that crisis um, in a way that's clear, right? The kinds of things that he's doing are very confusing. We can say that we have sort of this rise of a sort of nationalist, economic nationalist, populist kind of movement, which I think is true, but whether this uh, movement will be victorious amongst all these kinds of warring elites is not necessarily clear to me, right? If we see the kinds of jockeying and positions in the Trump administration, and the kinds of um, you know, opposition that he's coming up against. Um, it's not totally clear. I think, though, certainly um, we do see this kind of r- rising right-wing kind of force, both in the United States and in, in Europe and, you know, Philippines and now in Latin America. So this is something that's serious and that we'll, you know, we'll have to contend with. And, and would you describe that model as an authoritarian capitalism of sorts? Well, I mean, you know, I don't want to generalize. It's it's hard to say where, you know, where things will go in the United States. And I don't feel completely hopeless. I mean, Trump barely won. Um, and there was also, you know, a huge surge of support for Bernie Sanders, right? A lot of people are disgusted by Trump and they want nothing to do with this kind of, you know, nationalist, uh, kind of, uh, right-wing populist vision. So it's, it's not clear. I think we're in this time of crisis and it could go either way, right? We could definitely move toward the right, but there's also an opening, I think, for the left to step in, uh, with its own kind of vision. And I think, you know, I'm, I remain hopeful that that's a possibility. Definitely. It seems like a crisis is by no means a necessarily good thing, but it is what it is. And, uh, it's an opportunity for the left and it's, but it also opens up the threat of, uh, the far right taking advantage of the crisis to make things far worse. So what, what do you think, um, you know, for, for, for years, neoliberalism, uh, maintained its its hegemony in part by telling a compelling story about how that explained how the world worked to people and as hillary clinton's failed campaign makes abundantly clear that story is no longer very compelling to very many what story what vision do you think that the left needs to put out there in this time of crisis, especially since it really does seem like it's coming down ultimately to socialism or barbarism of some sort. 
Well, I think that the left needs to, I think that the left can actually build on, and just as you just said, the complete delegitimization of the neoliberal explanatory narrative. I think you're right to say that that has been delegitimized. You know, the kind of, um, in many respects, at least with regards to sort of how we should be running the economy and how we should be thinking about, you know, um, jobs and, and austerity and these kinds of things. I think that, that you're correct to say that that kind of narrative has been delegitimized. I think the left can actually, um, and, and by the left, I don't mean necessarily the Democratic Party, because the Democratic Party is not responding to Hillary Clinton's loss in a, in a very productive way, in my opinion. So if we think about what the left can, you know, kind of put forth as a plan to move forward, right? Um, I think it has to be built on this idea of, you know, that there is money. <laughs> there is money there to give people a good life, right? We all work and we all produce and there's plenty of wealth for us to give everyone a job, to give everyone single-payer health care, to, pro to provide free higher education, right? These kinds of a programs as a positive future vision, right? Uh, as something to say, we want a strong state that provides these things, a democratic state that we are all part of, and that we use the kind of collective wealth that we create to provide these things, to provide a good life for people. I mean, this is a very basic kind of program, but it's something that appeals to people, and it's common sense, right? Um, if you ask people, uh, you know, what they want, or if you look at why people were attracted to someone like Trump is that he spoke to the desire for these things, right? For security, for justice, uh, for, uh, you know, the having a good life. And he was really kind of playing on this nostalgia for that kind of a life, which is toxic in many ways, I think, this kind of nostalgia. But at the same time, it does tap into a desire that the Democratic Party is unwilling to really address. And why is it that, do you think, that xenophobia in particular becomes the vehicle for the far right to uh, explain to people what's wrong with the world in this moment of economic crisis? Well, I mean, that's a hard question. I think it really, um, people are afraid, right? They watch, if you, if, you, if you watch television and read, you know, your sort of mainstream newspapers, the profit model for, the, for this media is to generate stories grounded in fear, right? So people, um, and people watch it and they get very afraid. You know, if I talk to people, you know, other parents at my kid's school, I talk to my family, it's like they are generally afraid about sort of the state of the world, right? Or the state of the country. And if they're feeling insecure and someone is constantly, you know, you know, scapegoating immigrants or scapegoating people of color uh, or refugees, um, this becomes a very sort of easy explanation because it's an, an encompassing explanation. And this is really where we see the failure of the left to offer an alternative explanation, right? Something, uh, you know, the Democratic Party does not want to ever sort of spark a class war, right? They don't want to talk about 
the haves and the have-nots or, you know, uh, the rich versus the poor. So it creates a very muddled picture for people to understand exactly what their interests are and whose interests are in line with theirs. So the right has been able to capitalize that on that and really create, you know, an in-group, out-group dynamic that successfully puts, you know, immigrants and refugees out in the out-group you know, and white Americans in the in-group. I think that's a really good point <clears throat> to point to media, um, both more mainstream media, but also uh, Fox News and right-wing talk radio, which um, are such have such huge audiences, but such niche audiences that a lot of people on the left or more mainstream liberals or even, you know, more centrist or whatever, really don't understand the sort of propaganda operation and its scope that's going on on the far right. So when tr- when Trump came out, uh, came down his escalator to announce his campaign last year and called Mexicans, uh, uh, you know, rapists and, and criminals, a lot of people who weren't on the far right, I think, were sort of shocked uh, by the attempt to describe everyday Mexican immigrants as as criminals, but um, in the right wing media, and particularly on Fox News, there had been a constant drumbeat for quite a long time, focusing on every little case where someone who committed a crime who happened to be an undocumented immigrant, um, focusing on that case and propagating this notion that that immigrants in mass posed a criminal threat to the nation. Absolutely, I mean the right has had its eye on the prize. And they're organized and they have uh, an organized message, you know, with the, which the left definitely doesn't have. And liberals are completely out of touch with, you know, working people. I mean, that's a really sort of crass way to put it, but I think it's true. And we really saw it with the Hillary Clinton campaign. The kinds of things that sort of liberal media focuses on um, are not the kinds of things that people who watch Fox News or read Breitbart are are thinking about, right? It's, there really is this kind of, um, you know, talking past each other that, you know, we saw the effects of that in, in this election. In some sense, the left vision for what kind of society we want to build seems, as you described earlier, rather straightforward in economic terms. You know, we want not only social democratic reforms, but there are these social democratic reforms that we can explain to people and that make a lot of sense and that have a lot of popular support and that can help lay the groundwork to uh, transition to something that looks more like democratic socialism. What, but, but it seems less clear to me what the left vision, what the American left vision is for our ideal, for the geo, global geopolitical order that we want. That seems as messy as our domestic capitalist situation is, even more complicated because it's a total mess right now, of course, in significant part because uh, the U.S. has been bombing country after country and deposing heads of state all over the place for the last decade plus. So how would you articulate your vision for what, what a just global geopolitical order would look like, or the closest thing to it, to it, since we're just one country out of out of many. Well, I think, as you said, you know, the key here is to think about justice, right? Which implies a kind of moral framework, and not just a sort of straightforward social democratic. Um, you know, everyone gets an equal piece of the pie. 
kind of strategy. And this applies both to, you know, building the left in the United States, but also building an internationalist vision, right? So, as you said, part of the kind of vision for the, is straightforward. We, we want basic rights. Um, but that's not enough, right? The left also has to kind of convince people um, that, you know, having a kind of moral uh, framework, right, the kind of values that everyone has an equal right to live a good life, right? These are questions of morality as much as they're questions of sharing the pie, right? Or everyone has the right to um, pursue their dreams in a safe place, right? Or everyone has the right, you know, these are sort of liberal tenets, but they're also grounded in a kind of moral framework, which is not present Right or gets completely, uh, it's not present in our either our national kind of policies or our international policies. We talk about these kinds of things, right? We give them lip service, but they get immediately uh, pushed to the side uh, when questions about you know um, terrorism uh, or safety, right? These sort of dog whistle words then get used to brush aside the very important concepts of justice and morality. So I think part of building a left vision is is reasserting the importance of that kind of framework. Well, circling back to something that you touched on earlier is to what extent as Trump continues to experience domestic policy failure after domestic policy failure fails to really deliver on his promises to uh, former miners in Appalachia and laid off or fearful to, about being laid off auto workers in the Midwest to where does that go? And are you concerned that military action is going to be his de facto response to such failures? Short answer. Yes. <laughs> um, I never expected Trump to follow through on his promises to, for example, miners in Appalachia. Um, the even actually we have a great article uh in the last issue by Kathy Kunkel who talks about this basically saying um you know Trump's promises are directly at odds with what the uh you know coal and electricity kind of um uh institutions want uh and so he's not going to be able to to follow through on those promises and people are going to get really upset um you know the kinds of things that he says about rebuilding the auto industry really display a very um, crude and superficial understanding of how the auto industry is actually organized um, already regionally. So it's not, I don't think he has a lot of interest in actually, um, you know, creating these jobs that he promised. I think he was very interested in becoming president um, and was very excited about, you know, getting elected based on these kind of bombastic, racist, uh, misogynistic claims. I think he felt really great about that. Um, now, that he's actually having to deal with a bunch of other elites who are going to fight him tooth and nail, right, over what the future of the United States should be, over what the vision should be. Um, I am really worried that he's going to use um, his sort of power to make military decisions. Um, you know, he's going to use that as a way to 
push forward his brand. I mean, one of the things that has happened over the past 30 years is that you really actually see a consolidation and strengthening of the power of the executive um, and, a, and a weakening of the power of Congress. So it's very, it is very troublesome. Um, before I let you go, I want to uh, shift gears and ask you a question in your capacity as managing editor at Jacobin, which is just if you could tell people a little bit about where Jacobin um, is has come from, where it is now, where it's heading, and what you see to be the publication's role in this nascent left socialist upsurge that we're seeing right now. Well, I mean, if to, to think about where it comes from, I'm quite a bit older than uh, a lot of the sort of um, like Bosker, who is the founder of Jacobin, and Ramike, who's the creative director, and some of the other uh, editors, Sean uh, Good and Ella Mahoney and my Michael br- Uchek. <laughs> my brain melts every time I remember how old Bosker is. Yeah. So those guys are all like in their mid-20s, uh, and they all kind of came of age around Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and so that was like a really big deal for them. Um, whereas for me, it was like the anti-globalization protests of the 1990s were my sort of, you know, entree into <laughs> sort of thinking about politics. So we're, a, we're, of the same, we're of the same, almost, we're of uh, similar vintage. Yeah. So it's it's so for them this is a very sort of you know they saw the disappointments of Obama uh they saw the financial meltdown they experienced occupy wall street and it, for them it's i think jacobin is a kind of continuation of that reaction to the status quo this this sort of kind of uh lightning bolt realization like hey the system is <laughs> geared to not help us but it's actually stacked against us and we need to the odds are stacked against us structurally and we need to actually do something um so i think it builds on that but it also builds on this idea that younger people um aren't necessarily getting a lot of help or uh inspiration even from kind of older leftists right so you and I are kind of somewhere in the middle but sort of the older right new left generation those kinds of um folks you know a lot of them are are really great but as a whole right they haven't kind of left this uh legacy that younger people are latching onto i think there's an idea that we need to build something new and something fresh right so that's kind of the idea but also on a more fundamental level, kind of bring in, kind of rebuild the left, right? Which is why I got involved with the project. Rebuild the left and kind of try to help politicize a new generation and give them the tools to understand what's happening right now in the world, right? Give them some tools so they can read the newspaper and kind of parse what's going on, who who are the interests in, at play, and, and how to situate themselves in it. So I think that's the kind of... Um, you know, broader vision and where it's 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 coming from. Now, as to where it's going, I mean, this is this is an interesting question, right? It's grow. I mean, the magazine is growing pretty fast. Um, a lot of that had to do with the you know election and and people really getting politicized in that way. Um, but there's also you know limitations as to what a magazine can ever be. Right. If you're talking about building a mass movement, that's not a magazine. Right. A magazine uh, is not a party. Is 
a magazine is not a party, let alone a movement. Uh, it's a magazine, right? And we have ideas. So its role will always be uh, limited, right? It's, uh, so I think the idea is that it can inform, but there really needs to be, obviously, independent organizing uh, that's actually, you know, geared toward um, taking power and, and, and building political power. And it, it seems like there's also, just to pull up the hood a little more even, um, that there's a serious intent on the part of Jacobin to maintain itself as sort of a big tent socialist publication, even though some decent number of people who are involved are DSA members? Yeah. And that's, I mean, uh, and that's partly like, I feel very strongly about that. I'm not in the DSA. I've never been in any kind of leftist party. Um, I, you know, but there are a lot of DSA folks there, but they're all very kind of open-minded about um, you know, other kinds of political views. And I think people who are involved in the project are really passionate about not succumbing to this kind of age-old sectarianism that you see on the left, which is really toxic and divisive and not useful <laughs> because the left is so weak at this point. It's like having petty struggles um, is, is a complete waste of time. Well, I was going to ask you a lot of questions about very specific things about the Russian Revolution, but uh, <laughs> since you don't care about uh, meaningless sectarian debates, I guess I won't. Uh, <laughs> That's wise. Uh, Nicole, thank you very much. I enjoyed this a lot. I did too. Have a good day. Nicole Ashoff is managing editor at Jacobin and the author of The Prophets of Capital. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting a new episode every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Eliza Yeager, music by Jeff Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get podcasts and subscribe. And also, please leave us a glowing review. It sounds weird, but those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. They do matter. So does spreading the word to your friends. And please find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is extremely helpful. 